words from the Gospel of Mark in the 10th chapter, verses 42 through 45. And Jesus called the disciples to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be one who humbles themselves to all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life for many. Friends, will you join me in a spirit of prayer? Holy, holy God, may the words of my mouth and her mouth, and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you, O God, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this morning, on this Veterans Day weekend, I have asked my wife, Captain Nicole Battaglia, to share the pulpit with me. And this is kind of exciting for us personally because we've never done this before. We've never shared the space before, so this is great. Um, and what we're going to talk about this morning is a vocation that is built on this notion of service as referenced in this morning's scripture. This idea that whoever shall be great among you shall be one who serves. Whoever would be first among you shall be one who humbles themselves to all. So scripture calls us in this passage and in others throughout the Gospels to live lives of service. And when our military personnel swear oaths, they do so committing themselves to service. So on this Veterans Day weekend, let us honor veterans by considering how we, as a United Church of Christ congregation, are also called to serve in this arena. And I want to preface this by saying that the UCC historically has been one who is a denomination that is either fervently in opposition to war or is neutral and silent. And so what we're not asking you to do this morning is to uh, be a pro-war nationalistic church. That's the opposite of what we're asking you to do. But we are going to wrestle with a topic that is avoided in a lot of UCC churches. So we're going to wrestle with that together and out loud in this space. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. I'm going to start you off with a story. So, when I first went to basic training, I was 25 years old. They sent me down to Fort Jackson, South Carolina. I am not from a military family. I, in fact, I'm the first person in my family to serve in the military, so I have absolutely no idea what to expect. Uh, in high school, I was this out, queer person, very liberal, vociferously against the Iraq War, and now here I am through a bizarre turn of events here at basic training. I have no idea how this is gonna go. I don't even know if I'm going to like military service. So, get down there, things are going pretty well. We're about midway through basic training, and this is the part where I have to figure out how to shoot a rifle. I've never even seen a firearm in real life at this point, much less fired one. So, uh, turns out I was awful at it, and it was really not going well. I thought I was going to be recycled and sent back to the beginning to have to do basic training all over. Uh, that's what happens when you can't pass a particular portion of basic training and then you can do it all over again. So I am terrified, I'm worried, I'm frustrated, I'm lonely, 
and I don't know what I'm going to do if I've got to do this whole thing all over again. So Sundays, um, we are given off from basic training, off in the sense that we don't have training to do, but we can clean our bunks, we can do laundry, or like most of us, we opted to go to church. Uh, it was a great way to get out of the barracks, away from the drill sergeants. Um, I was not really a church person uh, at the time, but I would go for music and to talk to a few of the friends I'd made there um, without the drill sergeants hovering over us. So I'm at this Protestant service. It's being conducted by this Southern Baptist uh, preacher, and he gets to the portion of the service where we start communion. And he makes a point to say that only those who have accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior may partake in this communion. And I'm sitting there where I'm wrestling with my own theology at the time. I'm very clear that this is not an open table, so I don't get up for a communion. But then when I raise up my head again a few moments later, I realize that I am the only person in the room that is sitting and not in line for communion. All 200 people in the room are up in getting communion. And I sat there by myself in my chair, and I cried the entire time. Because it is, to this day, the most lonely I have ever felt in my entire life. So we're going to loop back to that story because the idea of an open table in communion is a very important one in our churches and in our military settings as well. We're going to loop back to that at the end of this morning's sermon. For, but first I'm going to share a little bit about me, some things that some folks in the room may not even know. Before I became your pastor, before I ever heard a call from God to serve in a local church setting in the UCC, I grew up in this military family, this Marine Corps family, and before being called to church, I felt a strong call to military chaplaincy. And my granddad lied when he was 15 years old to get into World War I, and then he came back to New Jersey, went the next week and enlisted again, this time with the Marine Corps, first the Army, made his way over the trenches in World War II, as well as being on the ground in Guadalcanal. It was actually a little flag that he kept in his pocket, a little American flag purchased at a store in Richland, New Jersey, that was hoisted up. It was the first American flag over Guadalcanal in the Marine Corps Museum. So I come from deep military roots. My dad was in the Marine Corps too. He retired as a lieutenant colonel after decades of service in the infantry. He worked these long, hard hours all over the world at a moment's notice, and there were plenty of birthday parties of mine that he missed, but I understood what it was about. And my grandma, she was a military wife, and my mom was a military wife, and those two are vocations of service. And I was this military kid, and I grew up on Camp Pendleton in Southern California, and as a kindergartner, my friend Jerry and I, we would hike up the hills up above the officer's housing, and we would lay on our bellies with our canteens and binoculars, and I would wear one of my dad's old duty shirts with one of his ties around it to make it fit. And then it turned out that my back surgery disqualified me from serving in the military as a chaplain. However, I found my way back into active military life through marrying back in. So I interfaced with military families and their concerns a lot. And when she was deployed, I served as the uh, leader of kind of the military families in her unit. So I walked with them through these months and months of deployment. And I heard about what it was like when all of the appliances broke and no one was there to help. And what it's like when one kid's sick and you've still got a full-time job. I heard these concerns. I heard these stresses. 
So Nicole and I want to share this pulpit this morning in order to give you a little peek into the modern military service members and families experience. Things that are specific to what is happening in 2019 with our currently serving massive veteran population. Ways in which the United Church of Christ and ways in which this congregation in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts can become increasingly aware of how we can interface with veterans in our lives. So I want to tell you a little bit about what it's like in the military right now. Last year I deployed to Kuwait and the head of the Army National Guard, a three-star general, came out to visit us. Proud of the Guard troops being over there, serving in the active duty mission. He thanks us for our support, being out there, being away from our families. And then he asks, how many of you, this, is this your first tour? And myself and about 10 other folks raised their hand. How many of you, this is your second tour? Maybe another 10 or 12 hands go up. There's about 80 of us in the room. How many of you, is this your third tour overseas? 20 hands go up. How many of you, this is your fourth tour? Another five or six hands. Fifth tour? Two more hands in the back go up. So what is it like in the military right now? We are exhausted. We are really tired. We have been doing this for almost 20 years without ceasing. This is the longest conflict in United States history, modern history anyway. People who were not born on September 11th, 2001, are now serving in our ranks. For the first time in the history of our military, we have a parent and a child serving together in which that child was not born when that parent first left for war. It's not cute, it's not good, it's not a good thing. So all of this is going on in the background while we try and address the changes and the issues that are happening here on the front burner. And those are the things I want to tell you a little bit more about. So today we have a greater presence of women in the military, which is fantastic. That's great. But it also often means single moms or primary caretakers in the family are being deployed without adequate support. Last year when I was overseas, one of my soldiers, she's a single mother of a 10 year old. On the civilian side, she's a law enforcement officer and her daughter was looked after by her father's ex-wife for the better part of two years because that was the only childcare she had available to her. We have dual military families that are deployed at the same time, not necessarily always to the same bases. And one of the biggest challenges in the military right now is the rate of military sexual trauma. Reports of harassment and assault continue to rise, and this is a ubiquitous problem throughout the military regardless of branch of service. Last year, there was a report that was released as to which military installations in the Army had the highest number of sexual assaults. The installation that had the most assaults was Fort Hood in Killeen, Texas. And if you're familiar with the Army, that's not a very surprising thing. But what was surprising is that the number of women who reported being assaulted and the number of men reporting that they were assaulted was almost the exact same. So not only is that a big shift for reporting in general, but it really underscores how pervasive this problem is, and it doesn't care about demographics, and it happens overseas just as much as we are stateside, and it is traumatizing an enormous number of men and women in the armed services. We have military uh, members of minority communities in our ranks 
whose family may need additional support due to systemic issues, such as wealth inequality or a lack of access to resources, and these issues often go unaddressed. The number of service member and veteran suicides are continuing to climb. We lose 22 service members or veterans every day to suicide, every day. We have lost more service members to suicide than we have to, to being killed in action in Iraq and Afghanistan combined. And after nearly 20 years of war, the number of deployments served by our soldiers, Marines, airmen, and sailors are reaching unfathomable levels. I serve alongside soldiers who have conducted four or five tours on their own. Here in the Massachusetts Army National Guard, we have an aviation battalion. They're based down in Cape Cod and they primarily fly helicopters. And due to the shortage of available aircraft and the shortage of pilots throughout the entire Army, they are the most deployed asset the Massachusetts National Guard has. Some of their pilots have deployed eight times in the last 20 years. So what can you do as individuals to better support service members, veterans, and military families? So you hear the phrase, thank you for your service. We say it often to our military women and men. Veterans Day weekend is expanded into a bit of a contest to see who can do more for veterans, who can give them the steeper discount at the home improvement store, who is willing to give them a free meal. People buy veterans drinks at the bar, thanking them for their service. Thank you for your service. I personally don't feel like veterans need to be thanked, or at least I personally don't feel like I need to be thanked. I love my job, and I love all of the opportunities it has afforded me and all the benefits it's provided me and my wife. However, we hear the phrase a lot, and for me it really does start to ring hollow. It is so easy to thank somebody for their service, to buy them a drink, to pay for their haircut. What is significantly harder is to take action in a way that directly improves the lives of veterans. Some of you may be asking what that looks like. The way I see it, there are two ways you can do this, and I think you should do both of them. First one, easy one, be a good person. Be a compassionate person. A person who cares about their neighbors, their community, their fellow humans. Be the kind of person who lives a meaningful life. One filled with joy and values and sharing and kindness. Be the kind of person who helps create a thriving community. One that fosters mutual respect and understanding, that takes care of each other. So we can have communities that we yearn to return home to when our deployments are done. Be good to each other. Be the kind of people we miss desperately when we are gone. We already made the decision and took the oath to lay down our lives for this country if necessary. So be the kind of people that we are honored to sacrifice our lives for. The other thing you can do is to take bold action. While I appreciate the sentiment, I do not need you to buy me my dinner at Applebee's. I don't need you to buy me my drink. I need you to show up on that Tuesday morning in November and I need you to go to the ballot box. That is what I need. That is how you thank me for my service. You go, you show up, and you demand political accountability on behalf of veterans and service members. You demand Congress actually ratify an authorization for use of military force. You vote for the senators and congresspeople who will make overhauling the VA a priority. You vote for the politicians who won't take the military budget hostage in order to pass whatever unpopular bill they want to jam through our legal system. I ask that you educate yourselves on the issues that are actually plaguing veterans. Our suicide epidemic is reaching a crescendo. Vote for politicians who will ensure adequate funding for mental health resources. As the resources for mental health continues to shrink, 
the rates of suicides will continue to climb, both with veterans and service members and everyone else. Veteran homelessness and underemployment continues to be a challenge. Here's where you can make an enormous impact with a very small bit of effort. Donate your time, donate your money, or your resources. Homeless and underemployed veterans are constantly looking for suits and business attires that they can wear when they finally get to go on a job interview. If you've spent a long time in the professional realm, volunteer at one of the soldiers' homes in the area and train up veterans on their interviewing techniques. QAQC their resumes for them. There are so many ways you can actually thank a veteran for their service, because at the end of the day, we are a group of people who work vocation that demands just a little bit more support from the folks around us. At the end of the day, we just need a little bit of extra help and support from our community. And support and intentionality is the best way that I feel people can do that. So, I was in my early 20s and I went before my committee on ministry in Southern California, and that's the group who decides um, whether or not somebody gets approved for ordination. And I had heard this call to chaplaincy, and the committee on ministry is supposed to kind of grill you on that call, but they grilled me in a little bit of a way that betrayed some of their own sentiments. And they said this, how can you possibly be a UCC pastor and support the military? How can you be a UCC pastor and support war? How can you be in the military and still believe and serve God? And those kind of sentiments are in our denominational lineage. And there's something that a lot of churches avoid talking about. And some churches actively continue to live out. And some churches, like what we're doing this morning, is to think about what these kind of sentiments mean in terms of our practiced theology and church life together today in 2019. So these questions, they betrayed a post-Vietnam denomination-wide sentiment that military people were outside of us and that they were other. Meanwhile, I grew up in a military household and we went to a UCC church every Sunday, so you can imagine the dissonance there. This sentiment of othering, it was meant to express that one could not live and love and preach from a theology of liberation and also be in relationship with military service members and their families and the complexities of their lives. And that didn't resonate with me. So to think that military people are other and exist outside of a theology and a mainline Christianity and a mainline church is really a falsity. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. To support military personnel and their family is in fact very much in line and intersecting with a liberating call to put our faith into action in regards to compassionate care and justice work. So to not support military personnel and their families in a church setting is a way of making clear to them that they are not welcome in our churches. So contrary to popular belief, not all military service people are Southern Baptist white men. Many are people who actually live lives on the margins, come from marginalized communities, and need the support of churches like ours, churches in the United Church of Christ, places that hold up more expansive theologies. Some service members are spiritual but not religious, many are in fact, or they are searching for a place of theological welcome 
a place that holds that there is not just black and white, but that we live in gray. Because much of what they do in their work, much of the grief that they hold, and much of what they experience needs a safe place to process it and figure out where God is in it. And that's our role, to create safe space for that. We can be a place that provides an open table for communion, one that many service members will tell a story just like hers about not being welcome for the sacrament. We can be a place that welcomes people to the table, as Jesus does, inviting everyone, a kind of open communion table that's not what was experienced down in Fort Jackson and many other installations. And this morning I have a couple of other very quick action items that we can do as a church and as a denomination. So the first one is that is this. When military personnel in our church, in our wider community, or friends of ours are deployed or are away at lengthy training sessions, we can get congregational care engaged in that. Don't keep that quiet. Bring that to the compassionate care group. We want to send cards. We want to send cards to the person. We want to send cards to the spouse or the partner. We want to care for those kids, make them know that they are special as well. Make sure that you let us know so that we can care for people together as a community. Second one is to get educated on post-traumatic stress disorder, on suicide, and on the process of re-entry. They don't just come back ready to roll. I can tell you there's a solid six weeks in our house that were re-entry struggles. I was very unpleasant. It's very unpleasant. <laughs> and that's not alone. They're kind of all like that. And so, so get, get educated on that. Get realistic expectations, you know? Get savvy to these basic military terminologies. Third thing is that we can encourage our UCC clergy to serve as military and VA chaplains because our denomination as a mainline sacramental denomination is highly underrepresented in the armed forces. And so when our denominational folks are able to interface with military and VA, we provide opportunities for worship, sacrament, and the things as basic as marriage retreats. I have a lot of UCC chaplain colleagues who are called in to do marriage retreats because our Southern Baptist colleagues will not do them if there is a same-sex couple participating in the retreat. And that's the kind of thing that UCC and other mainline military chaplains are able to do. Next one is to maintain pastoral care with deployed church members through cards, emails, visits with the family, and to remember that a deployment is not just a long business trip. And so when somebody's spouse is deployed, they are in a constant state of anxiety and filtering news around them. And so to remember that it's not just the one person who's deployed, but whoever's left at home, those kids who are acting out a little bit, all those folks are deployed in this process as well. And so to be sensitive to that. Next one is to invite our military families to share their stories and to be their whole selves. Many, many military people tell me that they feel completely silenced in church, that they're not welcome to bring that part. And so when we create space for that, we allow people to be fully present and fully a part of our community. Next is to think about rituals. So before somebody deploys, what does it mean for us to come together and lay hands on them and put all of our prayers and blessings into them and to say that our prayers go with them? What does it mean to bless people when they return? I remember being out in Arizona one time, New Mexico one time, I was on a mission trip, 
and I was listening to somebody, a First Nations person there, and she talked about the way that they welcomed back soldiers who came from their community to war. And they would go out for three days, and they would just camp around this fire, and they would let all of that person's stories come out, and they would dance and sing and bless until it was kind of a fever that was sweated out. And I compare that to how we in Massachusetts welcome home our National Guard soldiers. They either come to Logan or down in Providence, and they just kind of come down the escalator and we're good to go. One might be a little more realistic about expectations psychologically. Next, show dignity and respect, ask questions, be curious. Um, one that I hear a lot, don't talk about it as their job necessarily. Uh, a uniform is not an outfit, call it a uniform. So when we, when we use proper vocabulary and we think about that and when we use the wrong word and then we apologize and we ask for the correct one, we create a relationship with each other and that relationship is important. Uh, Double checking that as we live out progressive theologies, we are not simultaneously shaming military service. So thinking about how our progressive theologies also mean that we support people, mind, body, spirit, and in their communities when they are at home and deployed. Finally, taking time to sit in the reality that military personnel are some of the only people in our society who give an oath to give their lives for others. That's pretty big to give an oath to lay down your life for somebody else, instead of skipping straight to the saving peace of making peace, not war, it is important to pause just for a moment, just for a moment, to sit in that uncomfortable, enormous reality that people who have sworn this oath have said yes to a John 15, 13 kind of service, a laying down one's life. And then, pray and we can march and we can vote and we can speak out and we can support and we can ask them what they need and what they want. But first we can honor that gravity of a human willingness to serve. And with that in mind, let's take a moment. Let's take a moment and think about how the veterans in our own lives, what our family, friends, co-workers, colleagues, neighbors, who are the veterans in your life? Who are they? Think of those names, bring them up into your mind. And just think for a moment, how can you honor them? How can you honor them? And for each of you and for each of these people in your minds, it might be a little bit different. But there's some way that our consciousness around us can lead us a place of action and relationship. And in a moment, I'm going to invite Peter to uh, play softly. And for each of you, as you feel led, to come forward and you can grab a ribbon and write a name on it of a veteran who you're thinking about, a veteran in your life, and you can place it on this wreath as a symbol of prayer and honor and a desire to be in further relationship 